Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And John de Treville, uh, uh, among other others, um, ultimately found a way to reintegrate themselves into American society without much difficulty. I think that's a testament to the, the burgeoning uh, American nation. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Douglas Dorney talking about a British spy who stayed in the United States after the war, despite being caught. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Douglas Dorney. And he's going to be telling us a story about a man from South Carolina who was caught, arrested, and put on trial for being a spy. Now, we've done in the the 50 or so episodes of Dispatches so far, a couple of episodes on spying in the revolution. It's a very attractive topic. And it is a new year, after all. Uh, But this is not just another spy episode. The more you hear about the life of this man, uh, the more you understand it's much more a study of the politics of loyalism. This is a man who will uh, move to America as an immigrant from Britain, like many colonists did. He will feel loyal to the crown, and he will serve his country during the rebellion. Uh, What is really unique about the story is that after he's caught... Uh, He is not executed, which many people called for. But I think most interestingly, he stays in the United States even after the war. Uh, He chooses to stay here and I guess we would say rehabilitate his image uh, rather than fleeing as a refugee like so many other loyalists did. Uh, And those were the loyalists who were not arrested for being spies. So as we learn more and more about the political motivations for being a loyalist, the realities of daily life of being a loyalist. Because let's face it, loyalists have been demonized for the last 250 years to the point where we could not study them accurately uh, or in any sort of unbiased way. Uh, we, we begin to see, I think, a clearer picture of the, the practical realities of loyalism in the 18th century, which is essential to understanding what many call America's first civil war. I tend to believe it's one civil war after another in our history at any rate. Uh, But the sort of partisan nature of of the revolution. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Douglas Dorney. Douglas Dorney, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Tell us about your background. Well, I am not a professional historian. I'm, I'm an architect by trade and training. Uh, It's my day job, so to speak. Uh, I've been doing um, uh, in in architecture for about 20 years now. 
Um, so I, I designed mostly uh, uh, higher education buildings, science and technology projects, uh, university buildings, that sort of thing. So um, um, and from a historical perspective, um, you know, my interest in history goes back to really my youngest memory as a child. Uh, sort of grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, um, a place full of uh, pretty, some pretty rich history. Um, and my first memory really is of, of being at Fort McHenry in, in downtown there. So that's the famous fort from the history, uh, from the War of 1812. And that's really my earliest memory. And, and growing up in Baltimore, we lived on the east side of Baltimore. And um, we lived very close to uh, a battlefield, uh, the Battle of North Point, um, which occurred in 1814. And we literally, my friends and I, growing up, we played on the battlefield. So um, you know, I've always had a, a deep interest in history, but not really enough to, to, to major in it or seek it as a career. But um, 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 what, what launched me on the road to writing uh, this article was, was uh, a class I took after college. So I was several years out of college. And I took a class on uh, American military history just for fun. I've always been interested in it. And it was at six o'clock at night, so I could go to my day job and go to the history class. And it was really um, transformational in terms of, um, you know, just lighting a fire under me to, to, to look more into the revolution. I, I think uh, I never really read too much about it, but the, the class lit a fire under me. And we, we, we toured the battle of um, the battleground of Kings Mountain. Uh, so the class was in Charlotte toward the battlefield of King's Mountain. And you know, we went there, we were reading about it in class and, and learning about it in class. And then one weekend we went there and it was just a great experience. Um, and the thing that really lit a fire under me, another, another, another uh, incident was um, reading about the uh, Southern campaigns of the, of the revolution in class and realizing that uh, where I worked in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, um, I, the building literally sat on the battlefield of the, uh, the Battle of Charlotte, which happened in, 17, in 1780, September of 1780. So every day I was walking across a, a battlefield that very few people knew about. So that really um, started my interest in, in the Revolutionary War. And, and since then, I've just been reading all I can about it. And eventually I started to do research and then I started to write about it uh, uh, when, when uh, it, it seemed like a natural progression. What first drew your interest into this topic? So uh, the, the the article in John DeTrevel was the was the was the first article that I've I've had published. Uh, it's the second article that I've written, but the second one I've had published. Uh, so what really started it was research into the first article. So uh, as I mentioned in the uh, previously just a second ago was uh, I've been studying uh, the Revolutionary War in the South, and I wrote an article on. Uh, the first invasion of North Carolina in 1780, September to October 1780. It's the first British invasion of North Carolina. And it happened, uh, the, the highlight of it was the battle in downtown Charlotte. So I wrote an article about that, a pretty lengthy academic article. It's really my first foray into historical writing. Uh, again, this, this is a hobby. Um, and I submitted it uh, um, for a publication to a journal. And hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, I will hear back soon and hopefully it will get published somewhere. <laughs> Uh, because I put a lot of work into it, but um, the, the John DeTrevel article uh, started with the research uh, for from the uh, first invasion of uh, North North Carolina research. So in September of 1780, uh, in the Cornwallis Papers, um, the, the published and arranged editions of the Cornwallis Papers, um, there there was a note in September 1780. Cornwallis wrote to one of his officers uh, about um, all this intelligence that 
he he received from this man named Treadle. Um, and it was a it was, it was a, just an enormous amount of information on the American forces. And this is right before the um, the British Army was 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 mounting its assault into North Carolina, and he was provided all of this intelligence um, by this man named Treble. And down at the bottom of the page in the printed edition of the Cornwallis Papers is a footnote, a biographical footnote, um, and it, it said uh, Jean Francois de Treble. And it, it listed his uh, status as a continental officer and a uh, short biography of, of his actions during the war and that he was captured in, in 1780. So that my ears perked up and I was writing another article. So I filed that one away to immediately to kind of pick up when I finished the other article. And that's really where it came from was, was a, a just a really a, just a, a very brief historical footnote in the Cornwallis papers. What do we know about the early life of De Treble? Well, that was that was uh, that was a, a pretty serious challenge. I think, uh, as w- with most um, personalities or or people in the during characters, uh, officers, soldiers during the revolution, there, there, there's very little written about them other than uh, maybe some enlistment data. Um, and it was the same thing happened with John De Treble. It was very difficult to get information on him, finding out who he was. Um, and there was a lot of conflicting information. So um, at, at these days, I think most research is done via the internet. Um, so that's the first place I started with John de Treble was I had a, you know, there were instances of him in uh, the Cornwallis papers. I had those dozen or so instances published in the Cornwallis papers. There's some information from, from him in other uh, memoirs and histories of the war, but who John de Treble was as a person was, was very difficult to get to. Um, but, um, you know, pretty easily if, if you, if you, you know, I think I'm um, do some quick searches on genealogical websites, which I think are a double-edged sword. <laughs> um, you know, they, they provide a lot of information, but it's also unverified and unsourced. But my first foray in finding out who he was, was, was really through these genealogical websites. And frankly, a lot of it was kind of unbelievable. Um, you know, John DeTrevo was born in, uh, French Acadia, um, what is now Nova Scotia in 1742, and his his father was a, a an early settler of uh, in French Acadia, and um, his father was part of the defense of Louisbourg or Louisbourg. And in, in 1745, it fell to the British. Um, he went back. The, the French went back, and as I understand it, uh, recaptured Louisbourg, and then eventually fell again to the British. Finally, in 1758. So John de Treble uh, was part of all that as a youth, or a, I guess a teenager. Um, so from there, as I understand it, um, the family was sort of exiled to France. And, and um, just a few years after their return to France, um, John de Treble was a young lieutenant in a unit called the Legion Britannique, which was a, a, a unit, a regiment um, formed from various people uh, that some of the histories I've seen indicate that there were deserters or prisoners of war formed into a British unit um, uh, fighting in Germany during the Seven Years' War. So that was a, a major discovery and something that took a long time to figure out or, or verify, actually. Um, but it turned out to be true. A lot of the genealogical websites were, were actually correct. Uh, they were unsourced and had to be fine track down the sources. But um, that was a pretty remarkable thing to discover that someone who was exiled from French Acadia as a youth uh, moved to France and then was serving in a, in a essentially what is a British unit 
uh, I thought that was very, very surprising. Um, so that was right in the period of um, 1760 to 1762. So uh, one of the interesting footnotes of that military experience was, um, and this is verified in my research, that uh, John de Treble met a young officer named Charles Cornwallis during that that time frame in Germany, uh, 1760 to 1762. So um, there, there's a connection there, which will come up later in the story in, in the printed article. There's, a, there's very much a connection. And I think uh, that, 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 that played out uh, some 18 years later, that apparently, uh, according to all, all information I've, I've been uh, seeing and reviewing and exploring and writing about, um, so, um, yes, yeah, for some, from 1762 to 1776, there really isn't much information about John de Treville, unfortunately. Um, um, I think that's, there, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a dearth of sources and evidence from that time, but, uh, eventually he, it seems, well, obviously he made his way to America, but how that happened is not much is not much is really known, unfortunately. How did he first arrive in South Carolina, and what was his life like? Uh, well, um, there, there, there's there's a little bit we know about his life in South Carolina. So his the first record of him showing up in South Carolina is in uh, 1776, and it's from uh, I believe it's General William Moultrie's memoirs. Uh, so he's listed as a a lieutenant in the South Carolina Fourth Regiment, which was an artillery regiment. Um, so that's, that's really the first, the first indication we have of him in, in South Carolina. Um, there are, there, he was married in 1778 to a, um, a, what, from what I can tell, a prominent, uh, Beaufort Port Royal family. Um, the family were early settlers to the Beaufort region there. So, um, but, um, there are a couple letters that John DeTrello wrote, um, um, in the, uh, 1780s uh, that um, indicate to me that he was very much he was a very well educated man. So, the, so we have two letters from written by him, and it was it's very clear to me that um, he was very fluent in in English. Uh, if that wasn't his uh, uh, his native tongue, he, he 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 was taught English very well. He wrote very well. He he, he uh, expressed himself very well in letters, which would indicate to me that he was. Uh, of, of a higher status and someone spent a lot of money to educate him. Um, and I think that would, that, that bears, uh, that he was an officer as well. He was an officer, which indicates some, some social prominence and some education. Um, so, um, and there, there, there is a report that he owned a schooner, <laughs> oddly enough. Uh, one of the commenters of the article written on the journal website that was published noticed, um, uh, uh, sent me a note saying um, in the in uh, 1781 in the papers of General uh, Francis Marion, John de Treble shows up as being in uh, Newburn, North Carolina, trying to um, um, get his uh, his schooner uh, sailing all, uh, uh, on a trading mission in the middle of the war, <laughs> which which um, should, should, have, should have raised some suspicions. And, and maybe that actually was something that um, um, ultimately uh, um, turned out badly for him in, in his discovery as a spy. How did he turn to a life of espionage and spying? I, I, I am still trying to reconcile that, to be honest with you. Um, um, you know, why does, a, why does a continental 
officer who, by all accounts, um, was a brave, uh, uh, a, a brave uh, officer uh, wounded in battle. So John de Trevel, um, um, uh, fought in a couple battles uh, in the South. He was wounded in 1779 at the siege of Savannah. Um, why would someone who risked their, their life for the American cause almost immediately um, upon being captured in 1780 in Charleston turn to a life of spying? Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a mystery. Um, I think there's a, there's a certainly a dynamic of captor and prisoner um, being played there where, where the British c- controlled his fate. And um, I think that the, his relationship with Cornwallis may, may have played a, a role in it. Um, I don't know if he, if Cornwallis owed him a favor or vice versa, but um, there seems to have been some connection there that caused him to, to resort to spying. And, um, you know, in, in, in the article, I, I mentioned that um, you know, we may never know whether or not John de Treble volunteered to spy was coerced into it or uh, was forced into it. Uh, I, I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question. Uh, it, it seems to me like it, it wouldn't make much sense, or, or it, it seems to me like he wouldn't volunteer to spy the very dangerous activity, but um, it may have been more of, of, a, of a middle ground of, uh, of, of, a, of a negotiation in terms of uh, um, sort of volunteering to spy for better conditions as a prisoner of war. And we, we know that um, he had very liberal uh, parole uh, limitations while he was a prisoner of war and spying. He traveled all over North Carolina uh, while he was a prisoner of war on these spying missions. Um, and maybe that was enough for him um, to, to, to spy was being given a very liberal parole and not being uh, cooped up in a prisoner of war and barracks, or I don't know that he had been on a prison ship, but um but um, um, and maybe he was compensated, or maybe he he could have uh, he could have stayed at his home in, in Beaufort, Port Royal, South Carolina, which is not very far from Charleston, where where he was where he surrendered. So um, it's still a little bit of a of a, of a mystery. I think that's a, a common question with um, espionage and spying activities today: is is uh, what causes these these people to 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 violate their oaths of office and, and betray their country. Uh, so it's still a, an open question. What were some of the highlights, in your opinion, of his spying career? Well, certainly, uh, certainly in September 1780, um, um, from the information we have in the Cornwallis papers, uh, um, the Treble really delivered a very accurate, in early, in early September 1780, the Treble delivered a very accurate report on American forces in North Carolina. So, uh, he returned right before Cornwallis ventured into North Carolina with an accurate assessment of uh, troop levels, uh, numbers of troops, uh, numbers of artillery, uh, which officers were where, where the militia units were. He even met with General Thomas Sumter, um, uh, uh, who was, who was you know, Cornwallis was trying to get at Th- Thomas Sumter for a very long time. And the trouble met with him <laughs> and returned back to South Carolina. And the trouble even reported back to Cornwallis the tactics that were going to be used uh, by the American militia against the British troops when they came into North Carolina. So it was, quote unquote, fighting in the Indian method, you know, uh, a guerrilla style uh, uh, fire, you know, uh, fire, fire your, your rifles from behind concealed places and disappear into the 
the thickets of the the, the Carolina forest and, and fighting in very much a uh, a guerrilla style uh, warfare that that very much happened. That that happened exactly like uh, De Trevor predicted uh, in the first invasion of North Carolina. So um, he he provided actionable intelligence. Um, I, th- I don't think there's any denying that that um, the intelligence was accurate. And and uh, and I think the question is is is, is it, does it did it result in the loss of American lives? I think most certainly. Yes, it did. Um, the the the, uh, the uh, intelligence he provided with Colonel Wallace certainly certainly contributed to uh, American soldiers dying or being wounded or being captured. How was he ultimately exposed and captured? Uh, this is another mystery. Um, so uh, in, on January second of seventeen eighty one, Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Nisbet Balfour the commandant of Charleston, South Carolina, wrote a letter to Cornwallis, I believe, I believe it's Cornwallis, uh, saying that uh, de Treble has been nearly hanged um, um, and that we need to get him replaced with a better and surer man. I'm paraphrasing there, but that was essentially the gist of the conversation. So some, somewhere, we believe in Wilmington, or I believe in Wilmington, is where, he, where, where someone found out his secret for, um, for one reason or another. I don't know. The, the, the records are a little unclear. I wish Balfour had gone into a better description of how and why he got captured, but nonetheless, the trouble was captured and nearly hung, I, I presume, in late December. Uh, so the same commenter um, from the printed article that noted that uh, um, um, the trouble showed up in the papers of Francis Marion also noted that um, um, Francis Marion also questioned why the trouble was was. Uh, traveling through the eastern part of North Carolina as a prisoner of war. And I, I think it's very possible that uh, Francis Marion uh, sent letters off to uh, officers in Wilmington and Nathaniel Green saying, I suspect this man of being a spy. So, um, so Balfour's letter was on January 2nd. On January 1st, the day before that, General Nathaniel Green had sent a Maryland officer um, to arrest the travel. Uh, in Wilmington, so the um, travel um, was was assume, presumably arrested and escaped, or was released, or somehow got back to Charleston. Um, and it looks it looks like he he barely missed getting rearrested or confined and sent to Virginia or back to Nathaniel Green by maybe a week or so. So uh, that was that was a, an interesting turn of events. Was he was captured and released and. While he was while he was making his way back to um, um, Charleston, South Carolina, he he someone else was on the way to arrest him. You say he was nearly hanged in your article. Uh, how did he escape execution? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a it's a it's a mystery. I, I you know as you ask that question, I think that there may be some sources of that in, in the arrest records of the. Uh, Wilmington, New Hanover County uh, court records. Um, that's something that um, maybe <laughs> maybe something to research further coming out of this conversation is, is going to see uh, the court records, which are are fairly complete for North Carolina. There's there's quite a few arrest records uh, in the state archives, which which are a couple blocks from where I work, where where a good bit of this research was done for this article. So I, I think that's a that's that might be an area right for further research is, is, is finding out uh, how he was arrested. I think that's a, uh, it would be a, a great addition to the, to the story of, 
of how, how John DeTrepo was arrested. Amazingly, he did not flee the United States after the war ended. He stayed behind. Uh, how does a person like that, I guess for a lack of a better term, rehabilitate their image? Yeah, um, there, there are. So I noted earlier there, there are two letters, um, two known letters um, um, written by him that um, basically both the letters are, are really trying to uh, justify his actions during the war. So the, uh, the first letter uh, was uh, a letter to Lieutenant General Daniel Green, actually. Uh, it was written in, I believe, August of 1782. Um, um, but um, uh, and it's, it's, it's published in the papers of Nathaniel Green. And um, the, the, uh, the preface of the letter sent to, to Treble is not, is not known or the contents of it, but uh, Treble writes back to Nathaniel Green saying that um, his character was uh, under attack and he had to stay in his, where he was staying um, to defend his character that he couldn't return to Continental Army Service, which Nathaniel Green was asking him to do. So I thought that was very curious um, that uh, at least at least in 1782, it seems like people were starting to question his his loyalty, his associations with the British. And he, he went so far to write a letter to Nathaniel Green saying, I can't I can't be a, a continental officer anymore because I have to defend myself against uh, allegations from unknown people. Um, so th- th- that was a, a kind of a, a revelation that, that there, there was one letter that existed from. John to travel. The other letter was posted in 17, uh, 1784, 1785. Uh, and, um, it was, it was very much in the same vein of, of, uh, of explaining himself to the public. It was in the uh, South Carolina, Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina newspaper, where he published a, uh, a letter of his to the public saying, I'm being attacked by all these people with these very unfair allegations. Um, and his, in his closing statement, he mentioned that there was no proof of, 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 of these allegations. Um, and I think that was a very calculated thing for him to do was, uh, you know, was to say, there's no proof. If you have proof, I, I will, I will, I will address that, but, um, and we can address that in a public forum, but there's, there's no proof. And, uh, you know, people are making accusations about me, uh, uh about my, my character and my loyalty, uh, um, but again, there's no proof. So uh, I think that that may have diffused the whole situation, or at least it, that's the last record I have of, of him writing any sort of letter to anyone is, is that 1784, 1785 uh, letter to the public in the newspaper. <laughs> what does his life experiences teach us about the American Revolution as a whole? Well, my, my first reaction to that is, is um, that um, one thing that struck me as, as I've been researching this, researching John DeTrevel and researching the era was this an idea of the, the difference in loyalty and allegiance um, then was very different than it is today. Um, so, you know, we, and I say that in the context of John DeTrevel's actions, which, you know, he was, he was an American officer and he changed his loyalty to the British. And then after the war, when it became, I guess, convenient and obvious that the British were, were going to lose the war, he changed back to the other side. Uh, I, I, I'm reminded by um, right in this time frame where DeTrebo was spying, there were um, um, 800 American prisoners of war that 
joined the British Army or the British Navy uh, right in this time period of 1780, 1781. Uh, and, and so these were American prisoners who were captured at Charleston or captured in, at Camden in August of 1780, um, prisoners of war. And through a variety of means, mostly British recruiting officers, um, um, coaxing them or, or threatening them with a prison ship, many, many 800 uh, American prisoners of war joined uh, uh, the British Army, and by, all, by some accounts, maybe most accounts, a lot of them came back to America after the war. So um, I think that's, a, that's something that has jumped out at me. Is, is, and many of the Loyalists, too, you mentioned the Loyalists earlier, that many of the Loyalists had a very much uh, transient sort of sense of loyalty as well, that they were um, loyal Americans, and they sided with the British in a number of ways. And then after the war, as I understand it, um, most of the loyalists actually uh, seem to me have, to have stayed in the United States. Um, um, if 70 or 80,000 of them left to places like St. Augustine or Nova Scotia or, or Britain or someplace like that, um, there were more than there are more who stayed and, and somehow find a way to reintegrate themselves into, into American society. And I think that's ultimately a, a, a very positive thing about kind of a, a very negative kind of topic, such as you know, treachery and spying and, and uh, disloyalty and, and uh, betraying your country that the, the, maybe the good thing coming out of this story is that so many loyalists and, and, um, um, American prisoners of war who, who sided with the British and John de Trevel, uh, uh, among other others, um, ultimately found a way to reintegrate themselves into American society without much difficulty. I think that's a testament to, to uh, the, the burgeoning uh, American uh, nation and society. Um, um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's you know ultimately maybe there's a positive aspect to that is, is that um, you know there's the sins of those people if you want to call them sins uh, certainly maybe a sin on John DeTrevel's part is betraying your country that the sins didn't carry over to the to the following generation. Um, so one of the things I wrote about in the article was that uh, John DeTrevel's uh, children and, and descendants um, became pretty prominent citizens of the Beaufort community. And I believe it was John's uh, grandson became lieutenant governor of South Carolina. So um, that's a pretty that's a pretty fast rise for someone from you know your grandfather who was a, a British spy to becoming uh, lieutenant governor of, of of the state. I think that's a, a a fitting testament to American society at the time. Douglas Dorney, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.